It is wonderful that we have a Savior that has walked the earth where we've walked, that won our salvation through his perfect life, not yielding to temptation, but standing firm against it by his substitutionary death where he died in our place to pay for the sins, all the times that we yielded to temptation, and then to give that life, that forgiveness, that grace to us that we might know Christ. Isn't God good? He is good indeed. What do you want to be when you grow up? I remember being asked that as a kid. I've been asked that, frankly, as an adult. But uh, I think it's a good question to consider. What do you want to be when you grow up? And so I've heard a lot of kids give a lot of different answers. The most popular answers today between first and third graders is they either want to be a YouTuber or a teacher or a professional athlete, want to play professional ball, football, basketball, baseball. The regular answers, the answers I was most familiar with, I want to be a fireman, or I want to be a policeman, or I wanted to be a cowboy, uh, or even a, I want a profession, I want to be a doctor. We have a little boy across the street who watched as this building was being built, and I was talking to his parents not too long ago, and they said he's decided when he grows up he's going to build churches. That's what he's going to do. I think that's great. I have heard some unusual ones, and doing a little bit of research, uh, there was one little uh, second grader who said when he grew up, he wanted to be a ninja chef. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I think that's an excellent thing. Uh, and again, the, the little uh, second grade girl who said when she grew up, she wanted to be a potato. <laughs> I, I, I don't get that at all. In that same class, a seven-year-old boy was asked three things he wanted to do when he grew up, and here's his list. Number one, to get a girlfriend. Number two, to kiss the girlfriend. And number three, to rule the world. <laughs> I, I, just, I just think that's great. <laughs> so, let me ask you a question. Is it okay to be ambitious? Is it okay to have goals, to have drive, to be driven, to be zealous? Is it okay to desire things and to work and to sacrifice and able to get those things? I have often heard some very simplistic sermons against selfish ambition. And we need to understand uh, selfish ambition is a sin. We'll talk about that in a moment. But some of these sermons say, when all you guys that are striving and striving, you need to rest in Christ and what he's done for you. And you need to learn contentment. And those are true, but sometimes those are simply serve to put out the fire that the Lord has placed within you. And we need to recognize that we are to have godly ambition. I want to tell you that ambition is not bad. We should desire to be great in the kingdom of God. Amen. That's a telegraph that D.L. Moody sent his sister on his niece's birth. In a cable, terse, short, said, may she be great in the kingdom of God. And I think that's a great prayer that parents should have for their children. I think it's a great prayer that grandparents should have for their children and grandchildren. And that we should have one another, that we be great in the kingdom of God. Jessica read our text this morning about a period of time at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was taken out into the wilderness, driven out, cast out, literally, by the Holy Spirit. And there for 40 days he was tempted in every manner such as we are yet without sin. And, and when he comes back, we have these three categories, these three classic temptations. We looked at the first one last week, the temptations of appetite, the things that we just desire and that we hunger for. And we saw how Jesus won victory over those 
Today we're going to look at a second category. We're going to follow Luke's order. Matthew and Luke have a different order for the second and third. We're going to follow Luke's order. We're going to talk about the, the temptations of ambition. Because we can have and should have and must have good ambitions and great ambitions, but we can be easily tempted in the area of our ambitions. Again, just to read that last passage, after he was tempted 40 days, verse 14 of Mark 1 says, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And here's verse 15, that last verse there. He was saying, the time is fulfilled. It's done. We're ready. Now's the time. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. A kingdom that is both here and now, as Christ reigns in our hearts, as Christ reigns in our lives. But it's also a kingdom that is foretold, a kingdom that will come when Christ literally comes and establishes reign upon the earth. Some of you remember the prophecy that, of Daniel. God gave Daniel a vision. And I love the, the, the reality, the experience, uh, visceral experience that Daniel experienced in this vision because it was such a clear and such a, a bold statement. The Bible actually closes that and says that Daniel considered these things and his color changed. It impacted him uh, physically and emotionally. But here's part of what the Lord revealed to Daniel. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, by the way, which was what Jesus' favorite name for himself was. He's the Son of Man. There came one from the clouds, the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one one o-n-e one that shall not be destroyed so the lord jesus christ is coming and he's coming to establish on the earth an eternal kingdom he reigns today he reigns in the hearts of his people this kingdom as he told pilate as his crucifixion it's not of this earth there's another kingdom it's the kingdom that we're in and it's the kingdom of this world the kingdom of the world And the kingdom of God. Are you with me on that? Two kingdoms. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. One day, the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of our God. It's revealed in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So we've got the kingdom of this world. And we've got the kingdom of God, which we're to welcome. We're to pray for Uh, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But there's also this kingdom that we know that we physically live in every day. And there's some things that we know about this. We heard about this last week. By the way, this sermon is third in a series of four. If you're going to listen to one, I would encourage you to just get the whole context. But Satan is called the God of this world. He's called the prince of the power of this air of the air. He's called the, all the earth is under his rule. We need to recognize about this world. Now, Satan is not sovereign. God is. Satan is always God. Satan. You need to recognize that. But he's been granted authority and power to rule. And sometimes his rule is clearly visible. You guys heard the horrible stories of the shootings in the parade after the Super Bowl, the damage, the harm, the lives that were taken 
We see it in the trafficking of children and of the most vulnerable in our society. We see it in lives destroyed by drug and alcohol abuse. We see it in our culture approved in our world in the murder of unborn children. Sometimes the world's a pretty good place though, isn't it? Sometimes it's not so bad. Even when tragedy struck at the parade, there were those who ran in the way of fire, those who subdued gunmen, those who put their lives on the line to help. And we think of, the, of those who, who do this as a calling. And in many, we see many small kindnesses around us that people are engaged in every day. And sometimes even in the expressions of conscience that lead regular people to try to do the right thing on a consistent basis and the world's not so bad. Are you with me? And all of that comes under the kingdom of this world. And this is something that we need to recognize. Why did God send his son Jesus Christ? Because he loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Are you with me? All right. Now what Satan did in the temptation, the one that we're looking at specifically this morning... We'll look a little bit more. Luke gives us a little bit more information. So we'll just look at a couple of verses in Luke chapter 4. We'll look at 5 through, I don't know, 5 and following. How about that? The second temptation recorded in Luke. And the devil took him up. This is Satan taking Jesus up. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He's able to look, however miraculously, whatever visionary experience this was, he's able to see all the kingdoms of the world, uh, all in a moment of time. And he said to him, Satan to Jesus, to you I will give all this authority and the glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I can give it to whom I will. If you'll just worship me, it'll all be yours. Pretty good temptation, isn't it? Jesus came to save the world. Jesus loves the world. Jesus knows according to God's plan. Jesus knew according to the plan of the Godhead that it was going to require a substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus knew that to to redeem mankind, he was going to have to go to the cross. And it was not going to be a pleasant experience. It was not going to be something that was just assumed, but he didn't really feel all the pain. He knew he was going to feel every bit of physical pain. He knew he was going to feel every bit of hurt. But even far worse than that, I believe far worse than that, he knew he was going to face, for the first time in existence, God the Father turning his head and his face away from God the Son. And he was going to experience hell. He was going to experience the hell punishment for all sin, for all people, on the cross. Sufficient for all people in his death on the cross. The wrath of God poured out upon him. And Satan says, listen, you can skip that. I'll give you the world. You don't have to do all that. It can be yours. I'll give you all the authority. I'll give you all the glory. All you have to do is bow down to me. Was it a real temptation? I believe it was a real temptation. Not only because he was fully human as well as being fully divine, but fully human in that moment. But even looking at the opportunities and the potential and what he knew could be, that he would see even the bad and think, I can fix this. How often did we see him crying out over Jerusalem and Chorazin and Bethsaida? I want you to understand there are two kingdoms, and the challenge for us 
in our world, in our lives, not, not in Jesus' temptation, but in ours, is that these two kingdoms often overlap. And we're called to be ambitious. We're called to have drive. We're called to, to, to achieve. But we want to make sure that in our ambition, that we are being ambitious in the right kingdom. Not the kingdom of this world, but in the kingdom of God, if indeed we are members of, citizens of heaven, if indeed we are in the kingdom of God. We live in this world. We're, we're human. I don't know about you, but I'll read verses out of context, like Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. It says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. And here's what I think. I live on the earth. I'm confronted by earth stuff every day. I got vehicles. I got to keep running. I got work to do. I got a list. Y'all do lists? I got a list. And they all have to do with things on the earth. How can I set my mind on things above and not on things of the earth? And if you just take that verse out, it's impossible. It's not even reasonable. But when you put it in context where he says, we've been bought with a price. We're no longer our own. We've been saved. We've been redeemed. Now we have him living within us. We, we, we are set aside for a higher purpose and a higher calling than just the mundane, by the way, just the mundane, just the, the worldly things. And we're given the ability to do so. Let, let me see if I can put this in a little bit better context. I hope you guys are doing the daily Bible reading. Last Monday was Mark 8. So open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark in the 8th chapter. In the 8th chapter, we have the turning point of the Gospel of Mark. Mark has done kind of the Cliff Notes version, if you will, the short, the quick, terse statements again and again, taking up all the way up to the last few months of Jesus' life. And in chapter 8, Jesus starts to prepare his disciples for his death, for his coming crucifixion. I want you to hear with me and see if you can sense with me the reaction of Jesus to Peter when Peter thinks about the crown without the cross or, or when Peter speaks inappropriately. In Mark 8, and he, Jesus, begin, this is verse 31, I'm sorry, Mark 8, verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, who were, by the way, the religious people, the ones who should have been following him the most. They're the ones who should have anticipated his coming and welcomed him and knelt before him. But Jesus began to teach them that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be rejected and be killed and after three days rides again and he said this plainly no parables here no metaphors no oblique references i'm going to jerusalem i'm going to die and after three days i'm going to rise again well peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and the first thing i think is peter what is the matter with you bud <laughs> How dare you take the Lord Jesus aside and begin to rebuke him? But then put yourself in Peter's shoes. He loved Jesus. He loved Jesus. He wanted him to be crucified. He knew that Jesus was the only one who had the words of life. He just gave that testimony that he is the Son of God. He just gave that testimony just in the preceding paragraph, just a few minutes before this. And, and Peter's telling Jesus, no, no cross for you. Sounds like the temptation in the wilderness, doesn't it? The world without a cross. Uh, the, trying to achieve salvation without a cross. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Uh, as though to say, I can't even process that these religious leaders will crucify you. 
But Jesus turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Why? I believe it's because he's Jesus reflecting at least back upon that classification of temptation in the wilderness. It says, Satan offered me the world without a cross. And you're echoing what Satan said. You sound like Satan in the wilderness. You want me to convert people somehow externally, to convince them, to somehow have these people, the one who know the Bible's best and who should be following me, but they're going to crucify me. You want me to somehow convert them without the cross rather than following God's way of changing lives from the inside by giving them a new heart, by dying in their place. You want, me, you want for me to be great in the kingdom of men, but that my ambition is for the kingdom of God, and that requires the cross. And just in case that's a little bit confusing, just look at the next phrase in, in Mark chapter 8. When, Peter, when Jesus rebukes Peter, he says, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I want you to come back to our two kingdoms, the world of man, the, the kingdom of this earth, and the kingdom of God. That's the shorthand statement of these two kingdoms in conflict. I think it's important that we recognize that we are to be ambitious. Ambitious is a good thing. Zeal is a good thing. Drive is a good thing. But only in the kingdom of God. Only because we belong to Him. Uh, I, when we say don't set your mind on the things of God, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but you're setting your things on the, on the things of man. I think I am a man, but here's the thing. When you come to Christ, everything changes. In Christ, because of what He did, you get a new heart. A heart at peace with God. In Christ, because of what He did, you get new standing. You're now a child of God. You get new citizenship. If I can get that word out. You get new citizenship. You're now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You get new life. You were dead spiritually. Now you're alive to God. You get new love, new passions. You're passionate for God and for His glory. You get a new ruler. Remember what Jesus said to Satan's temptation. Worship him only, and him only shall you serve. You get new power, as Paul and the Scriptures say. Now we have a power that works within us, both the will and to do his good pleasure. Here's the point. Christians, Christians, talking, talking to believers, you're still in this world. You are no longer of this world. Amen? Sound pretty good, right? So what's the temptation? The temptation is to put your focus on the wrong world. The temptation is to put your drive and your energy, your attention on the wrong world. If we keep reading in Mark chapter 8, just to go back and pick up where we left off, what, how does Jesus describe this? Picking up in verse 34, Mark 8, 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So he gathered not only his disciples, but everyone around. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit? Here's your ambition word. All right, here's your goal-driven word. What, is it, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world this kingdom, but forfeit his soul. Lose the next kingdom. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Listen. 
I want you to know that in our context, we live in, in what I, we live in my favorite place in the world. I love Greenville. I just love it. I love walking the streets. I love talking to the people. I like it better in summer, but I love Greenville. Uh, it's a great place, too. You got the mountains right down the road. You got the beach not too far down the road. Uh, North Georgia is gorgeous. Western North Carolina is gorgeous. I mean, we're in the heart of God, the best part of God's creation. I, I was waiting. I, is, there, is, there, is there no amen here? All right. Uh, we're, in, we're in the heart of the best part of God's creation, in, in, my, in my humble and correct opinion. And our culture, in many ways, is a minimal to our walk with Christ. I can talk about integrity and morality. I can talk about, even here, profess being a Christian and can preach and share. I can go downtown Greenville and witness, and while not everybody's happy, a lot of people are. Not a lot of conflict between the two kingdoms. But there are places in this world where just naming the name of Christ and saying that you're following Christ will cost you everything that you have. It'll cost you a house. It'll cost you your life. I was going to bring a book. I left it sitting back there about two missionaries, a missionary family, husband and wife, and four children who went to North Africa to proclaim the gospel in a Muslim society. And they went, uh, and shortly after they got there, some tragic events happened, and the husband was killed because of his work. And the testimony of the family repeatedly throughout this was, we died before we came here. We died to selfish ambition. We died to, to the way that we intended to live our lives before we came to Christ. We died to our own will and to our own rebellion. And we're raised to obedience and we're trusting God with every aspect of our life. We did not lose. We died before we came here. Who is it? Jim Elliott? Remember Jim Elliott? Who said, you're not a fool to give up what you can't keep to gain that which you can't lose. Two kingdoms. Which one are you going to be ambitious for? Jesus won, of course. This temptation he stood firm but i do want you to make sure that we understand the temptation to rule to take up authority to receive glory without the cross going to the cross was not something that jesus just thought lightly about you remember how he prayed father let this if it be your will let this cup pass from me but nevertheless not my will but thy will be done he agonized over that in the garden of gethsemane to the point of physical stress and strain uh, and here peter says oh avoid the cross which is what Satan was saying all along. And, and Jesus condemns him. Um, the word that best sums up the temptation to the crown without the cross, I think, is compromise. Just compromise. Just, just go along to get along. And so I'm going to go ahead and give you your outline because I don't know how far I'm going to get in this sermon. But not only do we need to be ambitious in the right kingdom, we need to be zealous in the right way we need to not compromise because here's where the conflict between these kingdoms the rubber hits the road you do know that you can want good things and the right things and then proceed to undertake them and pursue them in the wrong way right you do know that 
You do know that you can you can try to get ahead and you can try to earn more and you can try to advance in work or you can try to provide or you can try to serve. You could try to do good things, but then you are tempted to go along, to get along, to do things in the wrong way. And we need to just determine and just resolve as a citizen of God's kingdom, I will not compromise my service to the king, my worship of, of God and God alone to somehow gain something in the kingdom of man. Uh, you guys are familiar with peer pressure. We talk about it with our kids all the time, peer pressure. But we talk about it with our kids as though adults don't have it. Can I tell you we have peer pressure? We have societal pressure. My dad used to tell us, boys, any dead fish can swim downstream. You should be a man and follow God and you will be swimming upstream and he'll give you the power to do it but you're going to be heading in the direction that is the opposite of where all your friends are going to be going. His advice took, helped, helped us. It helped us a lot. But I want you to know that your job and your coworkers and even people who love you and care about you and are well-meaning and want the best for you, they're going to counsel you many times to do things that compromise God's way of doing things. And you need to resolve in your heart that you're going to worship, love God alone, and serve Him and Him only. Now, there are a thousand applications for this. I just want to give you one illustration really quick. You remember back in the history of Israel, back in the old days, before there was a king in Israel, Samuel was the prophet. Samuel got gotten old. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you read 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, the, uh, the elders of the Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel and said, Behold, you're old. That's a great way to start a conversation. Man. You're old and your sons are not chips off the old block. Your sons aren't following in your ways. We need a king. And what do they say? I want to quote this for you. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, which means little in this context to rule over us, to judge us like all the nations. Just like everybody. Everybody's got a king. Why don't we have a king? Well, Samuel carries this to God. He's distressed. God says, Samuel, don't worry about it. It's not you they're distressed with. It's me. They don't want, to, they don't want this theocracy. You need to tell them the downside of having a king. And so Samuel goes back and he says, listen, if you want a king, he's going to tax you. He's going to, he's going to take money from you. He's, he's going to conscript you into his army. There's a burden being under the rule of a king. And they said, we don't care. We want a king. As a matter of fact, verse 19 says, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us so that we can also. No, let me get these words right. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may rule over us and go out before us and fight our battles. Let me tell you something. You're going to live by the principles of the kingdom of heaven. You'll be pressured to follow the ways of the world in ways that will compromise your testimony. Ways that will tempt you to shortcut. Things that will cause you to lie, to cheat. I'll make some of you mad. Even in how you raise your kids. Even in... How you take a stand for morals and what's right and what's not right. Yeah, can I just give you a general principle? By the way, young, young folks, I want you to listen to me. When you get to decision making, here, here's a principle that I want you to remember. 
When you don't know what to do, the hardest thing to do is almost always the right thing to do. When you don't know what to do, the hard choice is almost always the principle. It's a maximum. It's not universally true. But the hardest thing is to do is almost always the right thing to do. The thing that requires God's power in you. The thing that you can't do apart from Christ. And sometimes we compromise just to keep the peace. You ever been there? All right, I don't believe in this, but I won't say anything about it because I just don't want to upset anybody. <laughs> or I know this is wrong, but he's my boss and he's making me do it and I, I sure don't want to lose my job. I just want to keep the peace. I want to give you a quote from A.W. Tozer. I got in a book from Stephen Pierce when he led a, a, a study for men, uh, man, the dwelling place of God. He said, the blessing of God is promised to the peacemaker. But the religious negotiator had better watch his step. Darkness and light can never be brought together to talk. Some things are not negotiable. You with me? Jesus' response to this temptation. Jesus answered Satan in the wilderness and said, It is written, this is Deuteronomy 6, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. All right. We're to be ambitious in the right kingdom. We're to be zealous in the right way. And doesn't that sound a little self-serving? Doesn't that seem like we're, we're to seek God's reward in the kingdom that is to come? Really? Are we, are we about seeking reward? Yes. If you look at what Jesus teaches over and over again, well, we are to seek reward. We're to lay up treasures, but not in this earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, but treasures in heaven where they do not corrupt. There's going to be reward system that you'll see there. And, and, and I've got some questions in, in the study guide that I would encourage you to look at, particularly the question on Hebrews chapter 11 uh, and the principles that guide that. I do want to, to tell you that uh, um, one of the, it, it seems like it can feel wrong. And we need to make sure that we are seeking prominence, not for ourselves, but that we're seeking prominence for the right person. We want to be zealous for the kingdom of God. We want to be ambitious in the kingdom of God. We want to be zealous in the right way for God's glory. But this is not self-serving. This is seeking prominence for the right person. John the Baptist got this. You've got to get this picture. And I don't think we've explored this adequately, and I apologize for that. We could have done a lot more on John the Baptist in the first part of this series. But he comes out of the wilderness. He's about 30 years old. I believe he's a big strapping guy. All right, he's dressed in fur. He eats bugs. All right, this is, I, I, I can just, he's got a beard down to here. He preaches, and I can just hear him. Buddy. I, I, there's some guys that I grew up hearing preach, and I just put, they who are who I picture when I think of John the Baptist, with a thundering voice, no megaphone needed. He preaches to thousands, and his message is the same. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's time to repent. I want to baptize you as a baptism of repentance in anticipation of the Savior that's coming. And, buddy, he is a spectacle. And one thing is for sure, spectacles draw a crowd. And there are those who, man, they immediately sign up, and they just kind of, he's got his, I don't know what you call them, groupies, followers? He's, he's got his people that just hang around with him. And then he's got these big crowds that are just following him. You ought to hear and come hear this guy. And he is having a moment of fame and a moment of power and a moment of influence. And there's nothing in the text that would lead us even remotely to believe that he thought it was all about himself. But some of his followers did. In John chapter 3, some of them came to him and said, Hey, <laughs> 
You know our crowds that we've been having? Some of them are leaving. And that guy you talked about, they're going to follow him. And what did John say? You remember? It's summed up in the last phrase. He gives a whole explanation about he's the bridegroom. I'm just the attendant. <laughs> I'm the best man. But it's summed up in the last frame. He must increase. I must decrease. It, it's important that we grasp that our ambition is never selfish ambition. It's never self-serving ambition. It is always ambition for the glory of God. Take time to go through the text of Hebrews chapter 11. Look particularly at, chapter, at verse 6 and then 24 and 25. And you find that Moses was the most humble guy. And yet he was great in the kingdom of God. It was not about him. I'm going to close. Dear friend, this Satan will offer you the world. He will offer you wealth and fame and advancement, power and prestige. He'll offer you the girl of your dreams or the man of your dreams. He will appeal to your own desire and he will appeal to your own longings. But anything Satan offers you, however appealing it is, it's false coin, it's counterfeit, and it will lead to your destruction. It may be temporarily fun. It may be temporarily beneficial. It may give a brief high, but it always crashes and ends in despair. God gives a different promise. He promises eternity. He promises forgiveness. He promises sufficiency. He also promises pain and struggling. But His promises are always true. He promises a life beyond this one, eternal life, and a life that matters for eternity that you can live today. I want to sum this sermon up. Listen, if you didn't get the notes, get them now. I want you to be ambitious in the kingdom of God. Don't be ignorant. Don't be apathetic. Don't coast. Don't equate contentment with being lazy. Rather, as Paul told Timothy, stir up the fire that God placed within you. You only have so much time. You only have so many opportunities. Don't waste it on things that will pass away. And in your zeal, be zealous in the right ways. You'll face pressures every day from well-meaning people to compromise your convictions to get ahead or sometimes even just to survive in this world, this world that is passing away. Rather, store up treasures in heaven. Look to, to the rewards that are to come and trust God. He is unfailingly faithful and completely sufficient. And then seek prominence for the right purpose. To God be the glory in all things. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, to knowledge, to those who have no understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my Father, I give thanks and praise. Father, thank you that Jesus, when tempted in the wilderness to pursue selfish ambition, to take the easy way, the short way to, 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 to worship Satan, to, 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 to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish in a way 
that would have destroyed what he wanted to accomplish, what you desired to accomplish. That he stood fast, that he stood firm, that his love for you was supreme. Father, we live in a world of compromise. And I pray that you will teach us to be, first of all, people devoted to you in your kingdom. That we'll be people who are uncompromising in our obedience to you. And Father, that we'll just trust you, that we will ascribe you glory in every avenue and in every aspect of our lives. To God be glory, both now and forevermore. In your name I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.